Another example is a hand purse with a large purple heart filled with the interlocking heads of two amorous-looking unicorns. <laughs> I want that purse. You can't prove it. Oh, oh. You got nothing legit. Oh, oh. The glove don't fit. Oh, oh. You got to equip. Oh, oh. I didn't smoke it. Oh, oh. That's all you're going to get. Welcome to The Docket, episode 104. My name is Michael Spratt. Hi, I'm Emily Tammon. How are you, Emily Tammon? Going a little, got a little cabin fever. COVID-19 in it? I don't have any real fever, so that's something <laughs> that's, to be grateful for that's today. That's good. That's good. Yeah. No, it's, it's a very weird time. How are you doing? Good. You've so, um, become quite the hairdresser. I have dyed two children's hair, one blue, one green thinking no better time than to do something wild with one's hair than when in quarantine. One child loves it. The other one... Hasn't come out of his room since. Yeah, there were tears. I mean, it's fine. It'll grow out. That's what I said. Exactly. It's temporary permanent dye. It's arts and crafts time. We have to have some structure. We have to have a timetable. And for arts and crafts time, we decided to go hair dye. You've been good on the structure. After a week of sort of free-range children who were going crazy, you brought the hammer down and imposed a color-coded structure. I did, but I can't say I really stuck to it today. And then earlier this morning, I read a great little piece by Dr. Joel Westheimer, who's a um, professor in the education faculty at the University of Ottawa, and he basically said, everyone's being ridiculous. You do not need to homeschool your kids. This is an opportunity to have experiences with them, bake with them, garden with them, go for walks. and um, We can't do those last two things in Ottawa because the weather sucks here. It's really awful. Today it's pissing rain on top of ice and snow. Uh, but yeah, so I, I think I was feeling a bit of pressure because I was seeing what some other people were doing and there have been a bunch of things coming from the school. But now I'm a little bit more like, you know, I don't want everyone alone in their room on a solitary device all day. Um, so for me, it's more about enforcing together time and communal activities and you know breaks from screens and if we can build in some things where we're doing a bit of learning but I'm you know I think I'm going to take a little step back from like trying to have some kind of curriculum plus it's hard when your kids range from grade three to grade eight I mean big distinction between me and a lot of people I'm not working from home right now so I know people that have two parents both trying to work from home and wrangle slash educate children it's a big big challenge and let's not fool anyone here the color-coded schedule was very liberal in terms of its open-endedness and well that was the thing is like it wasn't so much that I wanted to implement a curriculum I just more wanted to implement some structure and expectations into the day in terms of it's almost as much about what we're not doing at a given time than it is what we are doing and they did well with it like I like there was a noticeable improvement in their temperament and demeanor totally once once it wasn't like constantly asking them to do something but it was just understood that it was time for like a creative time so let's bake something let's do a craft um they were much more agreeable to it and at least speaking for myself I found the days started to go a lot faster once they were kind of broken into hour and a half chunks yeah because it has been sort of chaotic and the schedule has been weird I've been working from home rarely going into the office only once or twice going into court when I needed to but 
it's been weird. And I can see how the kids could be sort of off because I'm sort of a bit freaked out too by the lack of routine. They've been on like full, full lockdown for, you know, what is it now? Almost two Almost weeks. Almost two weeks. So, you know, I've been to the grocery store once and to shoppers once. And other than that, I've also been basically in complete, complete lockdown. So, but in some ways, I sort of feel like it's going to get a little oddly easier as it becomes the new normal and we stop grieving what we've had to let go of. And like the stuff that I'm upset having to let go of, it's like going into the office, going into court, going into work. I mean, it's not like I was out and about doing stuff. I'm fine with social distancing. It's just been making work a bit crazy. Yeah, no, and it's all the question marks and the uncertainty. And I think like if things can settle into some kind of a rhythm where we know what's going on, but I think it's worthwhile talking a little bit about what all this has meant in particular for the justice system, since that's what we talk about. Yeah, so let's talk about that. We'll talk about what's happening in some different places, and I'll tell some stories about what was going on in court when I was there. But before we do that, Hmm. something I'd like to say. Say it. This episode is brought to you by Imam Publishing's Criminal Law Series, confidently navigating criminal law cases with detailed procedural and tactical guidance from subject matter experts. Each book covers a specialized area of criminal practice, written from the perspective of both Crown and Defense. This series is anchored by the expertise of general editors Brian H. Greenspan and Justice Vincenzo Rondinelli. To learn more about the series and read a sample chapter from each book, visit emond.ca slash docket. So, what a mess. Global pandemic. Who would have thought that that's what it takes to shut down our courts? But in Ontario and, you know, to various extents throughout uh, the country, courts are shut down. Yeah, and that's not a decision that would be taken lightly for a number of reasons. I mean, number one, people, I think, already understand that the justice system is struggling to um, manage with the dockets that it has. So uh, a delay, even, even taking a week... Um, of shutting down the courts has a cascading effect and will create real challenges. But it's also, you know, a place where transmission is um, as likely, if not more likely, to take place than in other locations. Yeah, you're dealing with vulnerable populations, exhibits that are all physical, people in close proximity to one another, and, you know, lots of different people that have different community contacts. So it's sort of the perfect melting pot for transmission and infection. And in Ontario, a bit of an update from our last episode, um, courts are shut down. Superior Court has canceled all except emergency uh, matters, which means you need to get special permission to bring a bail review. Besides that, there's not really much going on in Superior Courts. Jury trials that were almost finished, finished, but there's been no new trials for in-custody, out-of-custody stuff, and civil trials always take a backseat anyway, and so those, of course, are all uh, being adjourned. And in the Ontario Court of Justice, we started off with a two-week shutdown where in-custody trials were still proceeding, bails were still proceeding, time-served pleas were still proceeding, but out-of-custody matters had been shut down. That was supposed to run until April 6th. And I think in large part because of pressure from frontline workers, including the Criminal Lawyers Association, who's been led by John Struthers, our president, who's doing an amazing job. Um, 
they had been staffing courts with duty counsel and um, volunteers from the CLA to try to alleviate some of the pressure and grease the wheels, try to get things moving through the courts. Uh, at some point, they just pulled back and pulled all of their volunteers out of the courtrooms. And it was after that that the Ontario Court of Justice announced that until the end of May, so all of April and May are cancelled as well for in-custody and out-of-custody trials. The only thing that's happening right now is bail hearings, emergency pleas where people are at time served, and that's it. So an already strained justice system is going to have to cope with rescheduling almost three months, most optimistically. And we might go on longer than June. It could be longer, but we're going to have to reschedule all of those trials, all of those motion dates, all of those preliminary inquiries. Um, It's going to be a bit of a mess because it was even hard uh, to schedule stuff in the best of cases. Yeah. And I mean, but I mean, it's just, it's necessary. That's the thing. And, and I think if you have too many exceptions to social distancing, self-isolation, you know, whatever level of it you want to call it, um, then it's going to be for nothing. And that's what's, you know, I had a moment yesterday, you know, I've seen all kinds of public shaming of people that aren't social distancing and, you know, it's valid. People should be doing what they're being advised to do. But I kind of had this moment of like really, really deep resentment towards people that are doing that because I don't want this to be all for nothing. You know, I'm I'm willing to take these steps of, you know, essentially quarantining my family because I understand why it's necessary. But if it's disregarded by large numbers of people so that our sacrifice um, isn't even worth anything, that is very frustrating. I'm not sure that just going online and publicly shaming those people is is the way to manage it, but it has led to, you know, real discussions about how far should the government go, federal, provincial, municipal, in imposing these restrictions. And it's led to all kinds of, you know, interesting debates about civil liberties and what does it mean to suspend civil liberties? And, you know, some people taking the position that, you know, it's a free-for-all. You can suspend all civil, civil liberties for as long as you need to. Um, but, you know, I think I'm in the camp of people that say we need to be really thoughtful about these kinds of things. And just because extreme measures are necessary doesn't mean that we should think of it as a free-for-all and also doesn't mean that we should attack people who are insisting that there be some kind of legitimate, robust, thoughtful debate about, you know, what measures really are necessary. Yeah. And I mean, everyone is taking some measures. Um, uh, One of our awesome listeners, Chad, sent me in a practice directive from Calgary and also a practice directive from New Zealand, which sort of mirror what's going on in Ontario about trying to do everything by phone. Um, But yeah, I wonder if if we're going to see, you know, more individuals being charged or um, sort of more consequences for people who are not following the government's advice. And it seems the government is slowly ramping up sort of, it was sort of a loose suggestion then an encouragement and then like a hard ask. And then the prime minister is, you know, saying that there's going to be consequences if people don't follow through. seems like everyone's begging him to invoke, you know, emergency legislation to, to clamp down on things. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that would get sort of the public message across to people, but you know, I'm not a big believer in general deterrence. I think that if you're foolish enough to go out now, given everything that that you've seen, and you know, go to giant parties and and be in close confines, I, I don't know if you know some federal legislation or 
the possibility of a fine is really going to change that. No, and it's, I mean, it's easy for some people to say who are sitting at home in a nice house with Wi-Fi and board games and two incomes still coming in to say, it's not too much to ask, just stay the fuck home, right? Which is like a hashtag now. And like, I agree, people should stay home, but I think it's easier said than done for some people and not everyone who's failing to comply is doing it because they're on a beach partying. Like some people are doing it. Those are just people (laughs) in BC. Yeah. And in Australia and, you know, elsewhere. But there's also people for whom that idea is a huge, huge hardship. And it's really nice to see government stepping forward to, you know, implement relief programs and stuff. But I just think it takes a lot of privilege to suggest that people can just overnight stay home. Um, and so I wish people would channel some of the, their energy into finding ways to support, you know, their people in their communities rather than just assuming that everybody who isn't doing exactly what they're doing is, is either in bad faith or they don't care or they're selfish. Like, I think it's a little more complicated than that. And, um, that's why I think it's important to have these discussions because we need to make sure that people aren't falling through the cracks. And it's very clear that large, large numbers of people are right now. It's not to say that you can get it right immediately, but I just think, you know, I've just found it a little frustrating to see some of the really not very inclusive kind of analysis that's going on about what this all means and and what's appropriate. And again, I I believe that we should be self-isolating. I think, you know, everyone should be. I think in Ontario anyway, the government has probably left too many things open like the construction industry for example i think the definition of essential service is too broad and we need more people at home than are right now it's also hard to gauge number one because we've been so disciplined like i've barely been out so i can't even comment that much on on how widespread kind of adherence to these rules are but i agree with you about general deterrence and seeing you know now new measures under the quarantine act that are going to require anyone who's traveled anyone who's returning to Canada, regardless of where from, regardless of whether they have symptoms, to be quarantined for 14 days, totally reasonable, agree with that. I was a little surprised to see the levels of the fines attached to it, like up to $750,000 fine and up to a million dollar fine if you've put lives at risk or something by your non-compliance. And Are you saying those are absurd numbers? I find them high. Like, I mean, I... I understand that they're trying to send a message and these are maximum fines. I haven't actually been able to find the details I was looking before about, you know, what's the range? Is there a a mandatory fine or whatever? But um, at some point, fines are so high as to be, um, you know, just totally speculative and abstract. And, you know, most people don't have $750,000 and um, there's all kinds of issues with the enforceability of these kinds of fines. So I, I, it seems excessive, but I don't know enough details about the measures to really have an opinion. I mean, I think the one thing that's really struck me is the need for robust social services and programs at times like this, but also not at times like this. I mean, I'm looking at the government scrambling largely because, you know, the opposition, the bloc, the NDP, to some extent, the conservatives have been pushing for more money, more universal access to assistance. It almost sounds like the government has implemented a universal basic income. And how good would it have been if we were ready for situations like this? Because we had already a universal basic income, because we could be ready for this because 
We already have robust protections for workers, including, you know, paid sick leave requirements and things like that. So we're not into these ad hoc case by case debates where, you know, Tim Hortons is making people get a sick note or not paying people, which makes an, an incentive, especially if you're, you know, struggling to get by and need the income to go into work when you're sick. Like, imagine if we had these programs and had made better investments in healthcare and things like that. I hope that now people see the utility of that, not just in times of crisis, but in general, so that we can have a robust, healthy society that can weather disruptions like this a little bit better. I think it really underscores how precarious most people's financial situations are. And I think that speaks to the point that you're making that like, we don't have a proper minimum wage in our country. We don't have proper sick leave benefits for workers. We've eroded like all kinds of social safety nets significantly um, over time. And, you know, like I saw someone commenting and I totally agree that this interim measure is going to, you know, guarantee $2,000 a month. They're saying for everyone, but it's not really for everyone. It's for everyone who, from what I can understand, um, is eligible and that's not everyone. Um, But regardless, even if it was everyone, that's significantly more than some people get through their social assistance or disability benefits. You know, there's people that are trying to live on 600 you know, to $1,200 a month, and that the government would choose this number <laughs> as kind of the number, um, I think speaks to the underfunding of a lot of other programs as well. Yeah, and I mean, I've seen uh, the, the sort of the I- irony is that, you know, for so long, people, especially people, I think, on the right side of the spectrum have been saying like, you know, no government programs, you need to take personal responsibility for your finances, like you need to save appropriately, you need to have a budget, you need to have reserves, you need to pull yourself up by the your bootstraps. And yet, when there's a crisis like this, and large corporations come with their handout for money, they're so eager to bail out these corporations. And it's like, where's that logic? Like, I'm sorry, like Air Canada, don't you have a reserve fund? Haven't you budgeted for bad times? Like, how come you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps? It's just this like, this, I don't even know. It's like the the logical disconnect between those two propositions um, is sort of shocking. And yet we're still, I think, maybe focusing on employers and corporations and business, businesses too much when we should be looking at employees and the people and families that are affected a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think you, what you've identified is one of the big problems or fallacies of political rhetoric in general. Like it's the same when people try to liken um, fiscal responsibility in a government with household, um, you know, budgets and balances. And We wouldn't want the government being as fiscally responsible and, and balancing their checkbook like we do. Yeah, <laughs> but it's just like terrible. they're not comparable or analogous, right? And so I think the point that you've made is the, kind of the same. Um, but I do agree. Like, I mean, I understand where the... Um, where the uh, instinct comes from on the parts of government that if you, you know, bail out big employers, that that's good for employees. But um, putting the hands, the money directly in the hands of the people that need it the most um, seems to me in a time like this of crisis, especially um, to be what should be prioritized. Like we're seeing this, for example, with 
um, you know, measures to provide relief from mortgage payments or various property taxes for property owners. And then I'm seeing a lot of city councilors and other politicians saying, you know, and we call upon landlords to make sure these benefits flow down to your, you know, tenants. It's like, well, why wouldn't you be putting measures in place just to protect the rights of tenants directly rather than simply calling on landlords to do the right thing? Trickle down economics always yeah, works. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, in some cases, it may be because the level of government that's offering a particular program, like the federal government, the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation is federal, tenant rights are provincial, but like, come on, there has to be a better way than simply urging people to do the quote, right thing. Um, but again, I mean, these are, this is like an incredibly dynamic situation and where um, we've seen, we've seen the federal government try to give itself major powers with no oversight and see a little blowback from that. So, you know, there's a bit of trial and error, and I, I do think we need to be um, forgiving, but I also think that we shouldn't be attacked if we point out shortcomings in programs or, you know, if we question whether um, the right thing is being done at the right time. That's what I'm finding concerning. Like, on the one hand, I think, yes, absolutely, it's critical that partisan interests be put aside, that parties in Parliament work together, but working together doesn't mean blindly accepting every single measure that the government proposes in the interest of expediency. But like, yes, expediency has to be a priority as well. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think, um, anyway, so this is the real challenge for parliamentarians right now. Um, but, you know, I and, and we need to be you know really, really critical of sort of obtuse obstructionism, but not every question that's asked is an obstructionist measure. Yeah, and I mean, I think we saw that with uh, Bill C-13, which is the big bailout bill. I think after debate and after compromise, so I think it's better coming out of Parliament than it was going into Parliament. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, like, that's sort of how we want Parliament to work. Um, can we talk about something that may not be working so well? Yes. Our courts. Yes. I got some stuff to say. Yeah. So... In Ontario, everything's basically being done through remote appearances. And we're just talking about contested bail hearings, both at the Superior Court level for bail reviews and um, bail hearings in the Ontario Court of Justice. And please, uh, time served, usually joint position, please, um, in the Ontario Court of Justice to try to get people out of jail, because that's really what we need to do. We talked a bit about that last time. And we're trying to do all of this remotely using sort of like a 1970 style court system where we still use fax machines and stuff. I went to court on Monday because I had a client who was at time served. It was the first day of his trial that had been canceled. I hadn't been able to get in touch with him really because the jail has been on lockdown and I just didn't have contact with him. So he didn't know what was happening. The crown um, and the frontline crowns have been very good about working constructively and creatively to try to triage matters, you know, do please, do bails, that sort of thing. So I had spoken to the Crown. I came up with what I thought was a pretty good resolution, but obviously I need to take instructions from my client. And given this specific client and his mental health issues, a disembodied voice speaking to him not in private over the phone would have been a recipe for disaster. So for those reasons, I had to go into court to do this one time served plea. I was the only lawyer actually in court. There was still a judge, a clerk, and court reporters all in close proximity to one another. But 
uh, Crown and Defense were all calling in on sort of like a giant party line on speakerphone um, that was by the clerk's desk. And the accused was either in the building or on a video screen. And so I got to sit at court for six hours because that's how long it took to do one joint position time serve plea and watch what was happening and watch people's reactions in court. And it was not pretty. Yeah, well, and it's like when you have a client who's at time served and prepared to enter a plea and be released, it is just, you know, yes, everyone's going to have to make some sacrifices, but a person should not be staying in jail where they're even more vulnerable to infection just because the system can't manage to process them. So there's no question that the courts are going to have to maintain some capacity and everyone is going to have to be patient in the meantime, i.e. sit around for six hours. It it was bad. Yeah, he got out. And uh, I mean, I was out of there at five o'clock and the court still had a number of different pleas and stuff to do. Like, so they were going to sit late. But these are sort of resolutions, especially when it's a joint position, that shouldn't take more than 10 minutes. I mean, you read in the facts, it's a pretty streamlined process i mean that's what the justice system needs to keep running these these sort of pleas um and it took the court three or four times as long for each matter than it did when everyone was there there was lots of i can't hear you can you please repeat that the conference line's breaking up the accused can't hear there's some problem with exhibits that are being emailed in i mean on one hand the historic resistance we've seen from the institution to modernize has been largely overcome in the face of COVID-19. I wrote a piece saying that, you know, COVID-19 has done what, you know, multiple subcommittees and working groups and planning organizations and test projects and pilot initiatives haven't been able to do. Yeah, but yes and no, right? Because would you really want the way our justice system works to be that you have to sit in a room for six hours or on a phone on hold for no, six hours? Like, I mean, obviously... That's not the best example, but things no. like receiving disclosure. For a long time, it was like, no, you have to physically come and pick up a copy that's on a CD-ROM from the courthouse. We can't do it any other way. We can't email you disclosure because it's not secure. And how do we know this? And how do we know that? Within two days of courts being shut down, everyone was getting email disclosure. Yeah. You know, judges would say... we. You've got to bring your order to produce, um, you know, a consent order that judges sign routinely. You need it to bring it to the courthouse and leave it in a bin and then we'll sign it. You have yeah, to come back two days later case. because our staff can't, you know, doesn't have the capacity to print it out. But now all of a sudden we can do that. So we've seen the justice system try to accommodate in multiple ways. But even on these very simple matters, um, I don't know if the justice system is going to be able to. We're not going to be able to run trials like this contested pleas aren't going to be able to run like this and anything that's going to be lengthy or complex just you can't do it this way and so i mean i got my plea done my client was released he's healthy he's safe he's in his own residence now um but i mean i saw the look on the judge's face during this and he was in good spirits and trying his best but you could tell it wasn't ideal and the the poor court court clerk um it was one of the most and best experienced court clerks that we have in Ottawa. And just, I've never seen someone so close to a breaking point, doing multiple things, responding to emails, having all of these matters in this court and trying to, to deal with the chaos. all the other stress in your life. Like everyone is operating under a heightened stress. I think there's probably not a single person. I, I, like, I think of us, we're not particularly 
stressed out people but like it is like there's so many question marks you know and our moms are on their own and like you know just it's a, a general lack of income for the next yeah three like months. the financial like, I don't know. stress which again for us pales in comparison to a lot of people but it's still there and it's real and it, it's you know occupying some of our mental and emotional energy um so you know and i think those frontline court workers deserve there's like such a huge shout out and our gratitude and there's countless other people like them in other sectors um not to mention the healthcare sector um where you know d- doing your job is not only critical but also puts yourself at great risk um so it's just it's a really challenging time and so on the one hand you know i agree with you it's it, it's funny how the courts have been dragged you know to modernize but at the same time like even on the disclosure point like i don't think anyone was ever arguing that it's like physically impossible to email disclosure but they obviously had concerns and i don't think they were really prioritizing finding solutions to those concerns but i don't think we can necessarily extrapolate that because they're now emailing disclosure that means that the security issues that they were concerned about don't exist or aren't real um obviously you know a lot of standards have to be relaxed in these times um but i do think it it goes to show that it's 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 overdue and that maybe i mean I don't think this goes to show it. We've known it for a long time, but that a lot of these, a lot of these so-called concerns are really more excuses, and the status quo and its power are so strong in institutions like the justice system and reticence to change. So um, I think this shows that it can be done, and could it be done better? Absolutely, but like let's work towards that. And we're going to need to figure something out because we're looking at two months and probably longer of this, and the system simply can't even. I don't think, adequately cope. And like, this was a lot of sort of flying by the seat of your pants. Like, you know, do you admit the criminal record? Well, I can't uh, review the criminal record with my client. So sure. And I mean, like, those aren't ideal procedures to, you know, to make sure that the integrity of everything is is above reproach. Um, But, you know, over the next two months, like, I just don't know if the justice system is going to be able to handle this. And when we look at being able to conduct contested matters uh, this way, it's just not possible. And so that leads to the next big problem is rescheduling all of these matters and what are we going to do going forward? Because there's been a lot of scrambling in our courts to sort of deal with the necessary stuff, the time served pleas, the bails, the things that you can't not do. Um, And there hasn't been yet, and I hope that there is going forward, some planning about what are we going to do when things start back up? How are we going to reschedule matters? I mean, are That's we going to give priority to in custody? What about an out of custody person who's been waiting a long time? How are we going to double book these? How are we going to actually, you know, take proactive steps to limit delay and, and chaos in our court? Because, you know, some people are bringing up, you know, Jordan and will cases be thrown out? Even some lawyers on Twitter were bringing it up. And the short answer is no, cases aren't going to be thrown out. This is an exceptional discrete event that, that no one could contemplate. But, but it depends how we how in we the manage face it. of this exceptional discrete event, if you if the court and the justice system sits on their hands and doesn't take any steps to try to deal with it, then you could be getting into some problems with institutional um, responsibility for some of the delay that the, is going to follow over the next couple months and years, probably. That's right. I mean, it's going to be really, really critical for institutions to be able to show that they've taken every measure, you know, in view of the pandemic. And so, you know, I think you're absolutely right. Like if they just take the stuff that's been delayed now and just tack it on to the next available date, I'm, 
I'm not sure that that's going to be seen as acceptable. Um, and so I would hope, and again, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again, like, God bless the, the trial coordinators, but it seems to me like they're just going to have to take the schedule for the next two years and look at it like a blank slate and just, you know, really see, because there are some matters that will be set for shortly after the courts reopen, but then there'll be real questions about whether those should be the priority cases or not. Should they be moved or not? And I, I mean, I have seen some, I mean, crowns, I think our frontline crowns are really taking this seriously and especially about the conditions in the jails and what's going to happen in the jails. And we talked about this last time, so I won't rehash it, but the jails are a looming disaster. Um, an inmate just tested positive at the Toronto South Detention Centre. Um, he was admitted with flu-like symptoms. Um, we've had guards that have tested positive. We've had some court workers at court test positive as well. And so we know it's coming. And Crowns have been very proactive in trying to do everything they can to avert that disaster. And the government, you know, Doug Ford here in Ontario, has said some right things about increasing the access to temporary absence permits for those serving their sentences. But as I say, um, you have to look at what this government does and not what they say. And I've yet to hear of anyone being granted a temporary absence permit. So there's some stuff. Big time. Before we go on, this episode is sponsored by Iman Publishing's award-winning criminal law series. Here's where I'm supposed to insert some book that we've been looking at, that we've looked at recently and talk about it. I haven't looked at any books recently. I think there should be a book on the Quarantine Act and the suspension of civil liberties in extraordinary times. What say you, Iman? This has nothing to do with Iman, but friend of the podcast, Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, has a new podcast out where he's looking at the Emergency Measures Act um, with Craig Forces. Um, episode just came out this week. It's a good listen. But yes, Imond, maybe that very specific book would be selling like hotcakes right now. And perhaps I'll plant a little seed with our friends at Imond as well. But uh, in the coming weeks, I'll have more to share. But I will be um, returning to the workforce in the coming weeks or months, depending on what happens in the world. And we'll need to be developing some expertise in the area of uh, labor and employment law. So perhaps our friends at Iman's would have some Iman would have some suggestions of what I might want to read and might want to send some of those titles my way. They won't be in the criminal law series, but certainly uh, be grateful for some nudges in that direction. Speaking of the criminal law series, some people have some time on their hands now where they're working from home where they're taking care of their bratty children while they're trying to do things, when they have like maybe a bit more time on their hands. Criminal Law Series is pretty good. Go on Iman's website. There's books on sentencing, impaired driving, drug prosecution, prison law. Evidence. Many things. You said one. Well, Did I take all the easy ones? Indigenous law. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Drugs. All that to say, use this time to, you know, uh, really read up on some of the things that you've been curious about in the past while, but haven't had time to read. And of course, each book is written by, in conjunction with a defense counsel and a crown prosecutor. And so half of the book is very useful and half of it is full of lies. <laughs> what? That's I didn't enough. say who's who. Uh, for our listeners, though, Iman's offering 10% off in the titles in the series. Just visit imond.ca slash docket and enter code docket10 at checkout. You should do that. 
Now, before we wrap it up, because the kids are now emerging from their hidey holes. And I have a Zoom um, cocktail party to be at in the next 20 minutes. And there's our child and a wet dog sitting on the couch beside you. They both smell. Mm, yeah, <laughs> it's true. The dog smells good, though. Um, there is sort of one other COVID-19 thing that I that I shared with you this morning that I uh, discovered on friend of the podcast, Naomi Sayre's uh, Twitter page today, um, a decision for United States District Court for the Northern Districts of Illinois Eastern Division. And also, non sequitur, before I go into that, there's actually some Canadian case law with respect to COVID-19 that's been coming out. Some great decisions from the Superior Court with respect to COVID-19 conditions in the jail as a potential uh, factor on tertiary ground for release. So there's some developing case law if you're trying to get your clients out about the impact of COVID-19. But not as funny as this case. So this is an order of the court. Um, Art Ask Agency was a plaintiff suing uh, the defendant. And the case, quote, involved counterfeit unicorn drawings. The complainant includes a few examples of products that allegedly infringe on their trademarks which offer, quote, striking designs and lifelike portraits of fantasy subjects. And so they were asking for an injunction to have the defendant stop selling these uh, counterfeit products. Um, One example is a puzzle of an elf-like creature embracing the head of a unicorn on a beach. Another example is a hand purse with a large purple heart filled with the interlocking heads of two amorous-looking unicorns. (laughs) I want that purse. Um, And so the court outlines in the first paragraph, you know, their complaint. Then the court moves on to say, meanwhile, the world is in the midst of a global pandemic. The president's declared a national emergency. The governor has issued a statewide health emergency. As things stand, the government has forced all restaurants and bars in Chicago to shut their doors and the schools are closed too. And so the court then goes on to berate the parties for, or the party, the plaintiff, for using the court time this way because they filed this emergency uh, motion for temporary relief. And in fact, it seems like during the hearing filed a second emergency motion. Um, And so the court says, the plaintiff has not demonstrated that it will suffer an irreparable injury from waiting a few weeks. At worst, the defendants might sell a few more counterfeit products in the meantime, but the plaintiffs makes no showing about the anticipated loss. One wonders if the fake fantasy products are experiencing brisk sales at the moment. (laughs) And then the court, uh, after berating the plaintiffs a little more for wasting the court's time during this sort of emergency, the final paragraph reads as follows. 30 minutes ago, this court learned that the plaintiff filed yet another emergency motion. They teed it up in front of the designated emergency judge and thus consumed the attention of the chief justice. The filing calls to mind the sage words of Elu Root, quote, about half the practice of a decent lawyer is telling would-be clients that they are damned fools and should stop. The world is facing a real emergency. The plaintiff is not. The motion to reconsider the scheduling is denied. I love it. And so, I mean, like... Resources are scarce for everyone. That's right. So, you know, be reasonable in what you ask for in these troubled times. Um, Children who are now all standing around looking. uh, Does anyone want to say anything? Oh, that's a sure way to scare you away. No, I don't.
<laughs> no, you just did. Who? Which which child are you? The good one. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to say to our dedicated listeners? Shaking his head. Shaking his head. No. Um, so I think we'll call a wrap there. I know that you're looking at your phone. No doubt texting with your cocktail Zoom colleagues. You know, just trying to trying to make some plans. Um, you did have an idea to create your own cocktail-making YouTube channel. I mean, I've been posting a daily quarantini on Facebook, and I've been getting so much love. Um, do you do that on Twitter, too, or just Facebook? Just Facebook. You should do it on Twitter. I prefer Twitter. to just do it among friends because even though, you know, Facebook is not everyone's your good friend. But I just worry a little bit about people with alcohol dependency and, like, oh, it's your not wanting to, like, you know, just every day. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't people on my Facebook page that have the same issue, but they can just mute me. Um, but I just kind of feel like, eh, like, I see some people tweeting about how hard it has been to maintain their sobriety all the time but especially now that I just feel a bit weird and all my fancy ingredients like I don't know just seems like I'm saving it for friends that's true we got to find some alternative sources of revenue maybe now's the time to to reconsider monetizing this podcast (laughs) yeah more than the generous support that Iman offers of course of course well this is where I uh I think it's going to be um, tempting to start a YouTube channel where I make cocktails because you know got to bring home some bacon. You know that we're too lazy to do that though. We can barely oh, yeah. record. Wait a second. We're recording a podcast right now. Once a week. <laughs> Borderline. Uh, nuts to you, Peter Sankoff, who always make fun of our lack of podcast recording. I think now we've recorded more episodes than Paw and Order this year. Well, I don't know about that, but uh, we, we have. I'll just say we have. We. Um, are planning to have Peter as a guest on the podcast soon. We've got lots to discuss with him as well. So stay tuned for that. All right. So here ends your quarantine podcast update. And hey, I guess for the balance of this thing, you and I are stuck in the same house as working from home colleagues. So maybe we'll do this again next week. Why not? What else do we have to do? I don't know what miles is going to change. <laughs> Things can only get better though, right? Right. Exactly. Yeah. Better. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Thanks for listening. See ya. Wash your hands. Stay safe. Be healthy. Thank you to Jeremy Fisher for allowing us to use his awesome song, Uh Oh, as our introduction music. You can check out more at the podcast page at michaelspratt.com, or you can subscribe to the docket on iTunes. If you like it, spread the word. You can follow Emily on Twitter at Emily Tamman, and you can follow me on Twitter at mspratt. Thanks for listening. You can't prove it, oh, oh, you got nothing legit, oh.